0: verse for today in our series that we've been going through a more excellent way is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. I invite you to follow along there. We'll be reading more scripture throughout uh, the message this morning to expound upon this verse, but for now, hear the word of the Lord. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, it's our desire this morning to behold you. To look upon you in your glory. To see your face in its radiance. To see you in truth. Help us with the power of your spirit. Enable us to do that through your word we ask. In Christ's name, amen. As we have worked through this love chapter, as it's commonly called over the last several weeks, you will remember that the description of love began with two positive statements in Paul's description love is patient, love is kind. And then he moved into what might be called negative positive statements (laughs) love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. But in verse 6, we have an interesting contrast of a negative with a positive. And it's the only such contrast in the chapter. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. I think it's important to understand that these are not two unrelated statements in the text, but they are opposites of one another. We might be tempted to distill these phrases into two simple, unrelated moralisms. Something like, if you love somebody, you won't be happy when they sin, and if you love someone, you'll always tell them the truth. And those are good statements, I suppose, but they I don't think they get at the heart of what Paul is trying to teach us here about love. In what way are wrongdoing an action, and truth, more of a conceptual idea, in what way are those two things opposites? A couple of weeks ago, Adam in his sermon took us back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis 3, and I think that would be helpful to do again. You'll remember that when God created everything in the beginning, it was good. It's fair to say that his created world was a kingdom of righteousness and love, that objective truth reigned. That whatever Adam and Eve did was based in the truth that God had revealed to them in the natural world that He created and in the words that He spoke to them. And that living in that truth equaled right behavior on their part while enjoying God's love with one another and their Creator. But something happened wrongdoing crept in. But do you remember that something precipitated that? And what was that? That's right, a lie, a falsehood, straight from the father of lies himself. You see, lying and wrongdoing are inextricably linked. All wrongdoing, all sin, is based in a lie. The lie that begins, as God really said. And in contrast, all righteousness or right doing is based in the truth, thus says the Lord. So we see the relationship that love has to truth, as Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 13. True love, real love, love as expressed in the garden before the fall, rejoices in the truth of, thus says the Lord. And false love, that really isn't love at all, rejoices in the lie, Has God really said. One is based in reality, and the other in a delusion. In the next few minutes together, I'd like for us to explore further the definitions of truth and wrongdoing, scripturally, how that helps us understand what real love is, and then practically, by way of application, how can we, as the body of Christ at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church, love like that. Please turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 18, in your Bibles. After Jesus was betrayed and handed over to the Romans by his own people, he was tried by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and part of that conversation went like this. We're going to start in verse 37 of John chapter 18, verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king, and Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Why did Jesus leave heaven and come into the world? How would you and I typically answer that question? To live a holy and blameless life, to die for our sins on the cross, and conquer death through his resurrection. This would be the standard evangelical, orthodox answer to the question. What did Jesus tell Pilate the answer to this question was? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound even remotely close to the answer we might give. In this passage, Jesus didn't say he came to save sinners nor did he say he came to merely proclaim true statements or to teach people true moralism. He said he came to bear witness to the truth. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I believe that Jesus died for sinners and that he is our only hope. I'm not denying or minimizing any of the orthodox tenets of our faith. But our current Christian culture has reduced the gospel to saying the sinner's prayer. And when I read the scriptures, it speaks of something much larger, much grander than that. Jesus is saying to Pilate and to us, truth isn't negotiable. It's not optional. It's not one reality among many. Truth is the only reality. It is what is. In other words, he could have said, I came to bear witness to reality, I came to tell folks how it really is in the universe. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, and we sang it earlier, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus encompasses the very truth that he came to bear witness of. And this truth is much larger than the 33 years that Jesus walked among us. This truth he came to tell us about stretches back before the dawn of creation, and it will be the eternity that awaits us at the sunset of time. The story as contained in the whole of scripture can be summed up in these four terms, perhaps, that many have come to understand as a Christian worldview. Creation, fall, Redemption, restoration. Was Jesus born a human? Did he walk among us, die, and rise again, conquering sin and death once and for all? Yes. And praise God he did, for we desperately need it. But is that the sum total of the story? Is it the complete picture? No, it's not then why do we live our lives as though it is? In our time, the pervasive sentiment about religion is that it is a private matter, left to the spiritual realm of life, but should have no bearing in the real world. You wish to discuss politics? Okay, but leave your faith out of it, or it won't be a valid discussion. Want to discuss science? Well, don't bring your religion to the table. Science and religion have nothing to do with one another. And so it goes. This mindset, unfortunately, I think has crept into the church as well. We believe the gospel, we're saved. That settles that. Now Let's go about living our lives. Sundays are set aside to develop our spiritual lives, but the rest of the week we have to live in the real world. We have compartmentalized our lives and separated our activities into sacred and secular as though only the former matters to God. So when I'm away from church, the only things that really count for God are reading my Bible at work and telling others about Jesus, as though the work of Christ is limited to the moment of conversion. And the irony is that we have bought into the thinking of the day that this approach is loving. After all, we don't want to force our religion or our version of Christianity on anyone. The most loving thing we can do is to be tolerant and keep our religious views to ourselves. What Paul is saying, however, is that true love, Christ's love, rejoices in the truth. There's no timidity there, no compartmentalization, no shame, nor is there belligerence, intolerance, or bigotry. There is joy. Love has tremendous joy in the truth. So what is this truth that we are to be excited about? Well, we've intimated at it already, but let's drill down a bit. Turn to Romans chapter 1, Paul's book to the church in Rome, chapter 1. Romans, most of us understand, uh, and theologians understand, to be a comprehensive treatment of the truth. It is a glorious expression of the story of God and man. And Paul begins with the problem even as we saw it in the garden. As we read this, I want you to notice the connection between wrongdoing or unrighteousness and truth. Notice how Paul uses those words. We're going to begin with verse 18, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul starts his explanation of the gospel, not with Jesus being born in Bethlehem. He starts at the beginning. He reminds the reader that the truth has always been there right in front of our noses. From the beginning of time, it's everywhere in creation. But then comes the fall. And for the next several chapters, he shows us the effects of sin and the fall. There is no love here. There is no rejoicing in the truth. In our wrongdoing, we actually suppress the truth. When humans sin, we are not only offending a holy God and disobeying him, but we are joining the cosmic rebellion to suppress truth and live out a lie. Paul says in Corinthians that love can't possibly thrive in this environment. It just doesn't jive. But the truth doesn't stop there. Paul continues telling of the promised redemption that came in Christ, our champion, in the subsequent chapters. He lays out the good news. And if that weren't enough, the story culminates in restoration, recreation, our glorious hope that awaits us. And this is not some pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking on the part of religious folks. It's as real as the creation itself that shouts forth truth. And yet men and women in their foolishness worship the created rather than glorifying the creator. Paul says that creation itself, did you catch that? Is such a powerful expression of the glory of God that that testimony alone is enough to make man's rejection of God inexcusable. All of scripture outlines this universal truth. God created and it was good. Humans rebelled against God and fell. God provided a way for redemption through Jesus Christ, and God is restoring, and it will all be good again. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. But more than that, this is the meta narrative of Scripture. It is the story of reality, of truth. For God, is not compartmentalized in a man-made religion. God is the ultimate reality of the universe, and his story is the only one that is actually unfolding. Whether or not an individual accepts or denies this storyline is really inconsequential. It's the truth. It is what is. It's not debatable. And Paul says, this is what love gets excited about. Does your spirit resonate with this? Are you so excited there in your pew that you want to burst out in some expression of worship? That, my friends, is love rejoicing in the truth. Well, at this point you might be thinking, well, that's all fine for the theology classroom behind the ivy-covered walls of the seminary. What does it mean for me in my life? I submit that it means everything. First, and most importantly, this leads us to Jesus' second statement to Pilate. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Wow. That's a bold statement. He didn't say, you should listen to me because I am telling you the truth. He said that if you are of the truth, living in reality a member of God's real kingdom, that you will listen to Jesus. Jesus is truth. He is the only reality. Turn now to John's first epistle, way back there up against the book of Revelation at the end of your Bibles, 1 John chapter 1. And again, notice this connection that we've seen between lying and wrongdoing and truth and Righteousness. 1 John chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. In his quest to understand reality, the 17th century philosopher, French philosopher, René Descartes, came up with this axiom, I think, therefore, I am. Descartes, in his quest for truth, decided that the fact that I have consciousness means that I am real. It's interesting, isn't it, that long before Descartes, God stated, I am. God gave himself that as his name, I am. And Jesus affirmed it as his name during his incarnation. God is saying, do you want to know what matters? Do you want to know what the most real thing in the universe is? Do you want to know the meaning of life? Do you want to have a reason for your existence? Do you want to know the answer to the questions? I am. I'm it. Look no further. Every answer to life's persistent questions, as Guy Noir might say, every philosophic rationale for existence, every scientific theory to explain the physical world, every artistic endeavor, every mathematic equation, every political structure, every economic system that does not have me as its end is false, foolish, and not even rooted in reality. Sure, it might reflect the truth, for the truth is there. It was put in place by the creator. But if the creator is not the end of the quest, then the quest is flawed from the beginning. As we just read, there is only one path in this life that is illuminated. One way out of the darkness. Jesus' way. Remember, I am the way, and the truth, and the Only by resting in the finished work of Christ on the cross, only through the blood that was shed for sinners, only in faith can we know truth. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Love that rejoices in the truth is a mark of the follower of Christ. If it is not a mark of your life, then you must examine yourself in light of the one who is truth himself and see whether you be in the faith. So let's assume that most of us hold fast to our profession of faith in Christ. How does a disciple of Christ live out a life that rejoices in the truth, especially in a culture where the concept of truth is quickly eroding? What do you think the culture was like in Christ's time? The Romans were certainly the dominant culture of the world, they owned most of it. What was Pilate's astounding reply to these statements about truth? This learned man of letters, this erudite political leader who Rome had chosen to govern this part of its empire, what was his answer to Christ's questions? This person that was also responsible for getting to the truth in Jesus' trial. There's some irony for you. The judge and jury, all wrapped up in one man, there he was, standing before truth itself, looking into the eyes of the one whose words spoke everything into existence. And his response? What is truth? Nothing has changed, has it, folks? He could be your neighbor, or your coworker, or maybe some in this room. Has God really said, Even now we hear this statement in varying forms every day we are alive. It is the pervasive philosophy of our day. Well, it might be true for you, but it's not my truth. And unfortunately, the church has bought into this somewhat as well. Do you ever think about the decline of Western culture and morality? Does that ever cross your mind? What's your response to it? Do you yell at the TV? Do you blame the politicians, the TV news anchors, the Nashville musicians, and the Hollywood stars? Or do you weep and repent for our part in the church's failure to be salt and light, staving off corruption and illuminating the path to God? I believe that one of the reasons the American church has nearly ceased being salt and light in our culture is that we have lost our first love, that we are rejoicing in wrongdoing and not rejoicing in the truth of love. So what can I do? I'm one small person on the very gigantic planet of Earth. What can I possibly do? First, we must get out of our minds this idea of compartmentalizing our faith. Jesus Christ is all in all and he is Lord of all. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians earlier that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. We need to understand that life isn't divided up into sections for the Christian. All that we do, even the most mundane tasks like eating and drinking, are under the lordship of Christ. So we must get some corrective lenses and view the universe as God views it. Creation, fall, redemption, and yes, restoration. So let's think about some practical examples of how this might work itself out. Hypothetically, for a moment, let's say I work in the medical industry. Well, a typical worldview would say that I have a noble career because I am helping to alleviate the suffering of humanity, and It's also a highly valued job, and as a result, can be profitable, enabling me to live, me and my family, to live a very comfortable life and enjoy luxuries. What would it look like through the prism of creation, fall, redemption, restoration? Well, when God created, it was good. So in the beginning, I would be unemployed, right? Not needed. And one day it's all going to be restored again, so my profession is going to be obsolete then too. But in the meantime, I'm an agent of healing. I am fighting the fallen condition of the human body. And as we in the medical community uncover more of what God has placed in his creation for us to discover, it only expands our ability to join God in acts of restoration. And as I seek to glorify God in my work, I'm no longer simply doing this to make money or help humanity live a few more comfortable years on earth. I am partnering with God in acts of healing, love, and mercy. And since all truth is his, I'm simply reflecting his glory as I practice my craft. No longer do I simply have a job. I have a calling. All right, let's take something else. Let's suppose that I work in the garbage removal industry. Under a typical way of looking at things, I have a rough job where I handle other people's trash every day. And the only pleasure I can find in it is a steady paycheck. But what if I look at my job through the lens of creation, fall, redemption, restoration? Have you ever traveled somewhere where garbage removal isn't a priority? As I labor to provide a clean environment for people to work and live in, I am reflecting back to the garden and looking ahead to the new heaven and earth. I'm I'm helping people see beauty instead of mounds of trash, thereby pointing them to the creator of all beauty. I am in partnership with the healers that we just talked about by helping to prevent disease and pestilence from taking over. And in the act of recycling, I am doing my part as a steward of creation's resources. What about you students? I see you out there. It's about time, isn't it? If all truth is God's truth, then everything you are learning should lead you back to him. How do your areas of study look when viewed through the lens of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration? Maybe you've never thought about it before. Start now. It will change your life. Only look out because most of your professors won't be happy with that worldview. But remember, it is the true and right view. Moms. Are you slogging through each day trying to just survive and trying to raise successful kids to go out into the world? Or are you working through every activity your family is involved with to point sons of Adam and daughters of Eve to the Garden of Restoration? What about what we consume and do in our leisure time? Books, music, movies, TV, the arts? Do the choices we make reflect only a fallen world mentality, rejoicing in wrongdoing as though that's all that there is? Or is what we feed our minds and spirits with reflecting the grand picture of God's truth? Oh, hold on, Mark. Now you're sounding like a legalist. Really? Have we totally lost the ability to evaluate our lives on the basis of truth? We're faced with choices like this every moment we're awake. Do I take a walk with my wife outside, nurturing that relationship, by the way, this is getting real personal, enjoying creation and exercising my deteriorating body, or do I plop down and feed on the latest reality TV show that celebrates the baseness of sinful humanity while eating potato chips? Well, which one rejoices in wrongdoing and which one rejoices in the truth? If we belong to Christ, it's high time we stop rejoicing in wrongdoing and living lives that are suited to this fallen world. How much better to live lives in preparation of that true and perfect world that is to come? You say, boy, that sounds easy, but it's a lot harder in reality. Did you catch that? Our problem, folks, is that we are not living in light of reality. We're living in the darkness of this fallen world. Whether you spend your time in economics, politics, law, serving others in the service industry, academics, medicine, science, or the arts, it doesn't matter what field of study, what vocation, what hobby, what leisure activity. Where do you think all these things came from to begin with? God. They're his. And you won't really be satisfied anyway unless you're applying them in the light of his truth. And if you do, you will find what it is to love rejoicing in the truth. Folks, we're not called to peddle the gospel as though it is the best and latest self-help program out there. We're called to live and proclaim the truth of God of the universe. We're not called to chalk up converts as fast as we can run them through the gospel mill. We're called to make disciples of the one true God. Can you tell me a better witness to a hurting, fallen, and broken world than a community of believers who love like God loves and who spend their lives at home, at work, at play, and yes, at church, rejoicing in the truth of his creation and his word? So what is our purpose for being in the world? It's the same as Christ's. On the night he was betrayed, as the disciples were eating with Jesus, he said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You all sort of love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus wasn't talking about having a warm, fuzzy feeling for one another. He wasn't giving them some abstract sentiment. He was telling them to love in an unusual way, as we have seen in the last several weeks. He was saying, love in a way that rejoices in the truth. But Jesus' new commandment can only be realized as we live and find our joy in the light of his truth and righteousness. For only then will all people know that we are his disciples but he didn't leave us to try and do this in our own strength. He sent a helper. His very own spirit to equip and enable us. And you know what? He also prayed for you. And he continues to pray for you. Why did Jesus come? To bear witness the truth. Why are we here? To bear witness to the truth. Love rejoices not in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Let's pray. Father, we have a high and holy calling. You have set us apart to be a noble priesthood. But, Father, we fully acknowledge in the light of your truth that we are incapable of carrying out even this simple aspect of rejoicing in truth and loving in that way. We can't do it. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to enable and equip us in this. And so, Father, as believers all around this room are calling out to you for that, answer us in this prayer. Enable us and equip us with your Spirit to live out our lives in this way. Bend us towards truth. Bend us to the light of your glory and righteousness. Help us, we ask in this. And help us for the name of Jesus' sake, for his sake and his glory alone.